0: Hello, I'm Liberty Erickson, and this is a MIWA podcast. The lecture, Stone Drawings and Quilted Lines, One Day Tells Its Tale to Another, was recorded live Monday, October 5th, 2015, as part of the MIWA School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast consists of excerpts from the lecture and was first posted in 2018. The lecture is introduced by Jane Stafford and features Barbara Todd, a quilter, mother, teacher, and artist. She visits us from Troy, New York, where she currently teaches weaving at the Emma Willard School. Barbara also teaches fiber structure at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. Her quilted works are both innovative and provocative, exposing ironies between conflicts of power and human values. Most notably are her security blanket series. She also works with a vast variety of other materials, ranging from metal, glass, vellum, and wood. Her work has toured extensively across Canada and the U.S., and is represented in private collections, large-scale public art installations, as well as numerous museums and galleries. In this podcast, Barbara explores how to find the balance between our home, our hearts, and our current social and political life.
1: I am so pleased and excited to introduce my dear friend Barbara Todd. Barbara and I first met 34 years ago when we were both students at the BAMP School of Fine Arts. We were just beginning to stitch together our adult lives. Traditionally, quilts have layers of cloth. Barbara's quilts are constructed with layers of cloth and layers of meaning. Each stitch binds her ideas into the wool fabric she so carefully chooses. Her use of historical stitch patterns binds the past to the present and she overlays them on quiet fabrics with simple images to explore personal and social issues with profound results. Barbara lives in Troy, New York where she teaches at Emma Willard School. She is also a part-time instructor at Concordia University in Montreal. Her quilts are in the collections of the Canadian Museum of Civilization, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, the Vancouver Art Gallery, the Canadian Art Bank, the Library Gallery in Cambridge, and many other public institutions. Please join me in welcoming my
2: bestest friend, Barbara Todd. (laughs) First of all, thank you, Charlotte Kwan and your whole amazing team including family, friends, volunteers, co-workers, to everyone who's made this lecture and visit possible. I'm thrilled to be here. I have lived in Cambridge, Guelph, Windsor, St. Catharines, Banff, Toronto, Montreal, and Troy. But I've never lived in Vancouver. However, I have gathered friends from all those places, And some of you have ended up here this evening. Thank you so much for coming. I'd like you to keep in mind that nothing I will show you happened in isolation. No matter what or where I was, I had my family, dead and alive, my communities, my friends, my colleagues, my mentors, and all the work that's inspired me. If not physically nearby, they're always inside my head. My parents started very early teaching me about repeat patterning. It was Alberta in the early 80s. There was lots of oil and lots of money. The director of the Banff Center, David Layton, was good friend with Peter Lougheed, the premier. And there seemed to be no end to what was possible. Anyone who was anyone in the art textile world came to Banff. Many people in the art world came. The Fibers program was headed by Mariette Rousseau Vermette, and the assistant was Ines Burstens. We had regular visits from Mildred Constantine, and the roster of visiting artists was amazing. Who wouldn't come to Banff? Clement Greenberg came and argued the supremacy of painting over nature. Michael Asher came and hired a group of us in the Fibers studio to hand hook squares of carpet to replace sections in the Walter Phillips Gallery. Magdalena Abakanowicz came to be an artist-in-residence in the summertime and to have a show at the Walter Phillips Gallery. Uh, Ritzy and Peter Jacoby came from Germany. Naomi Kobayashi came from Japan. Almost everyone came from NASCAD. Also, for two years, the Center funded a New York trip for the resident visual artists. We visited the studio of Lenore Tawney, of Judas Shea, of Jack Lenore Larson. In Banff, there was a whole jazz band in residence, and they had jazz greats visiting and performing. Playwrights had their works read for the first time by actors and actresses. So what was I doing there? Two years before Banff, in 1979, I was working as education curator at Rodman Hall in St. Catharines by day, painting by night, when a traveling exhibition of quilts came to the gallery. I researched the show in order to train my docents, and I was blown away. I decided to make my own quilt. I had always sewn my clothes, but having studied studio art and art history in university, I had never brought the two together. Perhaps the first time I felt real passion for my work, I felt like I really knew what I was doing. That's when I quit my job and moved to Banff. I stayed for 12 years. So, what was I doing there? I was making a series of works about clothing larger than life size plywood cutout shapes of dresses, life size self portraits in graphite. The project began with photographs of myself in all my clothes. Then, I made a representation of each in miniature from the corresponding fabric. The result was my quilt, a self-portrait entitled Cover Under Cover. Thanks to Mary Scott at Stride Gallery in Calgary, I showed this work. At AKA in Saskatoon, I showed the drawings and the plywood dresses. All this self-portrait work was fine. The quilt medium would define the craft of my career. But looking back, the most exciting thing I did in Banff in those early years was photographic. In 1983, Brian McNevin, assistant curator at the Walter Phillips Gallery, put out a call to the resident artists for ideas for a thematic exhibition called Inside Outside. Preoccupied as I was with clothing and the way people look, I drafted a proposal to make a photo installation of 350, all 350 students, staff, and faculty at the BAM Center organized according to predominant body gesture. My photograph was accepted and I did it. I had to find every single person and photograph them. It was more fun than I have ever had being an artist and the project still makes me happy. There were many interesting pairings This is the chief financial guy at the Banff Center and, of course, the dishwasher. Another note about Banff, there were always smart people around. For example, Hugh Hohn, who suggested I look at the work of August Sander, the German photographer, and Janice Runge, journalist, who suggested I read The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. It was truly an informal MFA, I have three times since made pieces that had their origins in this work. The first, in 1987, was called Wall Street, innocent enough at the time. I photographed and then cut out business people from the New York York City's financial district. Of course, after 9-11, the work became highly charged. I was invited to show it, And a new piece, Responding to 9-11, where I used the negative shapes in a show entitled New York Après New York, A Memoir to a Wounded City, at the Photographic Museum of L'Elysée in Lausanne in 2002. I stayed and stayed in Banff. I didn't really have anywhere that I wanted to go back to. After the first year, I worked the summer in the studios, I had a second year residency, and then continued to work, married, had two children, and just stayed. My children paved the way to being part of BAMP's larger community, and my parents-in-law made Calgary an easy destination. So I wasn't always in the pressure cooker environment of the BAMP Center. But I had access to everything at the BAMP Center, partly because I knew everyone because of the peace. I worked at jobs when I could, I squatted in the studios when there was nothing in session. Even when I wasn't connected formally, I benefited from what was going on. The Walter Phillips Gallery had wonderful, wonderfully stimulating exhibitions. Lauren Falk, Dinah Agatis, Sylvie Gilbert, Helga Pakasar, Barbara Fisher, Manon blanchette all brought world-class art to Banff. And they are, by the way, still active in their fields. You are lucky to have two of them here now. Ed Cavell and Elizabeth Kidd at the White Museum curated more locally relevant shows. And then there was everything in Calgary. So, the security blankets. Six years after my first quilt, I began another, which became the first in a series called Security Blankets. There was no end of research material. There was the Jane's Weapons Systems, an annual compilation of all military hardware. There was fascinating critical writing. Carol Cohn's Sex and Death in the Rational World of Defense Intellectuals was very informative and would have been hilarious were the stakes not so high. The years of making the security blankets were years of protecting the physical vulnerability of babies and young boys. The quilts' anger and their irony balance the vulnerability and insecurity that comes with mothering young children. The quilts are about power. Their, quote, masculine simplicity lent a solidity that daily life lacked. The process of making them fell into steps. After conception, always the most difficult, each step could fit nicely with mothering. First came the idea... Then the research, the drawing, finding the fabric, the sewing of the appliqués, sewing them to the quilt base, assembly, planning the quilting, and then the quilting. It was piecework, and the first one you saw was a two-year project. I stayed with this work for a long time. I'm sure that one of the reasons was the tactile and visual pleasure of working with fine woolen fabrics. Here's me working in one of the center's vacant studios, sewing on the appliques for security blanket 57 missiles, while eight months pregnant with Adam. And here we are again, two years later, this time quilting wild goose chase. This security blanket child's quilt was first shown at the White Museum in Banff with a stainless steel hospital crib and my own baby blanket knit by my grandmother. Every once in a while, I have the good fortune to bring an old quilt pattern forward into the present. This is one such. The pattern, Wild Goose Chase, was perfect for the stealth shape in every way, not least the title. This slide shows a Scytho-Siberian felted funeral carpet made between 100 BC and 200 AD. It shows a spiral and scroll motif in the middle bordered by wild animals devouring one another. I drew my pattern for the applique border, switching the border to contemporary methods of destruction and aggression, and used the spirals and scrolls in the center. Another traditional quilting pattern and paper piecing technique, the medallion, led me to make coffin quilt, simply by elongating two sides of the hexagon. The quilting lines come from the spirals and scrolls of the funeral carpet. About two years into making this work, Joan Stebbins at the Southern Alberta Art Gallery in Lethbridge did something that has seldom happened to me, and she did it for countless artists. She approached me and said she was keen on this body of work and that she would like to show it. No rush. Just call when I think I might be ready. What a great feeling to be working away, knowing for sure that it would someday be seen. And it traveled across the country. Also because of Joan, this show had a catalog with two wonderful writers contributing essays. One of them, Bruce Grenville, now at the bag, later organized a show called Corpus, which did the other wonderful thing, and that's to have your work placed thoughtfully into a meaningful context with other artists. In this case, because it involved two generations, both mentors and peers. To be in the same gallery with Betty Goodwin, Gathy Falk, and Liz Magor was an amazing feeling. In 1993, we moved to Montreal. Three-year-old Adam, seven-year-old Louis, and Michael, century, for those of you who don't know me. I was fortunate to have, while we gained our feet in the new city, the work Touring. My identity as an artist and as an artist mother was fragile, and having the work popping up here and there helped a lot. But how to continue? While still in Banff, my Lewis's grade two class visited my, quote, studio, which at that time was in the bedroom. They made drawings based on what they saw, and afterwards I made a quilt adapting those drawings to applique images. Lewis, his grandparents, and myself carried this quilt as a banner with the text panel in a march for International Women's Day in Calgary. I had brought with me from Banff the packet of drawings made by Lewis and his classmates and made from them this quilt called Night Sky. I was reading poetry by women. Muriel Rookheiser, the poet, feminist, activist, wrote in her poem, The Speed of Darkness. The universe is made of stories, not of atoms. Ruckheiser also wrote Darkness Music, which I found to complement this quilt. The days grow and the stars cross over, and my wild bed turns slowly among the stars. The edges of this work are pieced in the traditional quilt border pattern called sawtooth. This was a nod to Gloria Rosenberg, a Toronto quilt historian and collector, who had a shop I visited frequently called Sawtooth Borders. The next quilt, Dark Star, a small quilt about a meter by a meter, returns to traditional and very much made uh, pieced eight-point star motif. The patterning of the quilting on this one is an asymmetrical detail from a Welsh marriage quilt made by Rosamond Lewis. The asymmetricality calls into question However, subtly, the solid completeness of the star. I was still working from home. But for a month, in the spring of 1994, I rented a large studio. I took night sky, dark star, as well as a small study, which I intended to enlarge. However, something completely different happened. And I think it had something to do with being in a large, empty space. Four-year-old Adam made a little drawing while sitting at our dining room table in view of this postcard of The Dream of the Wise Men by the 12th century sculptor, Gilbertus. I will never know for sure if there's a connection, but it was the drawing, Adam's drawing, that inspired the quilt Adam's Boat and put an end, once and for all, to the military imagery. The making of this quilt also signaled an end to my comfortable step-by-step process. Here, there is no material logic. In fact, it's a wasteful way to use fabric, pieced or applique. The form is fluid and amorphous, not rectilinear and logical, as my other quilts had been. In the summer of 1996, I had the wonderful opportunity to work in the artist-run center, Gallery Obero in Montreal, using the whole gallery, as my studio in preparation for a fall exhibition there. I had the whole space. I took the two large quilts, the small star, lots of children's drawings, and my collection of poems. Now, Obero, one of the earliest artist-run centers in Canada, was founded by Daniel Dion and Sue Schnee. Early on, Bernard Billado came on board, and he and Sue are still there. Sadly, Danielle died last year. A Mouthful of Stones was a work made for the exhibition with the quilting assisted by Trisha Fragnito. The classical orator Demosthenes, who stuttered, would fill his mouth with pebbles and practice speaking in order to cure his impediment. Paul Solan, 20th century German poet, thought of A Mouthful of Stones as a metaphor for the poetic utterance. For me... It's just simply about the great difficulty of saying anything. Another work conceived during the residency started from this little alabaster carving in the collection of the Albright-Knox Art Gallery in Buffalo. A Sumerian worshiper, almost 5,000 years old, I first noticed her for her clothing and I used its patterning, which suggests fur or feathers or perhaps even quilting, they don't know. For the quilting lines of the quilt entitled Pelt. The pelt sort of hovers somewhere between an animal and a bomber. It was the hands that suggested the accompanying segment from a poem by Paul Celan. You teach goes from active to passive, awake to asleep, alive to dead. There are thresholds, liminal zones. There's a sense of being in both places, of having an awareness of more than one dimension. The exhibition, A Bed is a Boat, included three elements. First, the wool quilts. Secondly, large brush-lined drawings based on those of young children. And thirdly, text and excerpts from poetry, as well as folk lullabies. The text is printed with pale beige cut vinyl letters, easy to see in person, but invisible to the camera. The title came from a brainstorming with Sylvie Gilbert, who by this time was back in Montreal. My hope for this work is that it be elusive and tender, opening up a dreamlike space. In this state, as we might see in Adam's boat, also referring to the etymology of the word bed, a bed is a boat, is a hole, a ditch, a cradle, and a grave. Three years into living in Montreal, thanks to Obero, I had roots. It turned out that this show had legs. It was shown in Cambridge, Ontario, where I grew up, and where a lovely essay was commissioned from Peter White. It also traveled to the Museum for Textiles in Toronto, where I was invited by Sarah Quinton, the curator, to spend a week well before the exhibition in the bowels of their storage, collection storage, to see what I could see with a view to making a piece based on something in the collection. It was amazing to be there. It's a very small institution, but with a rich collection and very little bureaucracy. The historian Laurel Thatcher Alrich talks of her desire to reveal the lives of the women who remake the world every day. She continues, It's not an imaginative connection though imagination is part of it. My connection to the past, or any historian's, is through the stuff. It's about sources, about clues, about the leavings, the remnants of people who once lived and who don't live anymore. At the Museum for Textiles, I was doing what Ulrich does, but not as a historian, as an artist. I selected three 19th-century quilts from the museum's collection and one knitted blanket. They're all very worn. They're all wool. All simple, utilitarian, warm covers. I then made a quilt conforming as much as possible to the color, materials, and general style of the old covers. I then folded my own quilt into a pile of those old quilts. By inserting one of my own into the pile, I was by turns buried, embraced, held, by the history these beautiful objects contain. And it was co- accompanied by this excerpt from To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, for it was not knowledge but unity that she desired, not inscriptions on tablets, nothing that could be written in any language, but intimacy itself, which is knowledge, she had thought, leaning her head on Mrs. Ramsay's knee. While my show was up, There was an exhibition of war rugs from Afghanistan organized by Max Allen, co-founder of the Textile Museum, on the same floor. His walls were densely hung, full of rich, deep, dark colors and dense patterning. From one of the galleries, you could peek through to see Adam's boat. Max called this the sherbet course, a nice little break from the dark, dense carpets. This work kept going, In a number of different ways, the wall drawings became drawings in water-cut steel. Other drawings got printed on mylar and paired with painted wood shapes. The Obero Show in 1996 gave me the courage to sign a lease and rent my first studio. I was 44. It was an old brick school, and the classrooms were all rented to artists. First, there was the physical space but it was just as as important to have mental space and, of course, the stimulation of being around other artists. Things started to happen that would allow me to keep it. Michael was going back to school to do a doctorate, and we needed cash. I was busy. To make a long story short, I made two Torah cloths with colleague Deborah Newmark, made two quilts for people's homes, I taught a course for the first time at Concordia University, and I completed my first public commission. During this time, I had a part-time studio assistant, my, the only time in my life, Louise Dubay. This work for Montreal's Jewish community campus was to be a quilt for their lobby, but because the location was filled with direct sunlight, they opened to the idea of cut steel. I researched biblical quilts, biblical plants as the Prescribed theme was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I visited metal shops, sought advice, and I made this work called Cradle. It was a pleasure to work on it. Like the early quilts, I felt I had a series of little jobs. I was helped and coached by Louis Barrett, a metal fabricator who works with artists a lot. Then came Airbier, the first commission for the public Quebec Percent for Art program. It was a series of six quilts on a botanical theme for a nursing home in Shadow Gay. Unusual for a public commission in that I could do all of the work myself. The most satisfying moment, however, was having this pile of folded quilts because each one had to go on a separate floor of the nursing home, so the only time they were together was then. And then came the biggest commission to date. I was shortlisted for a competition for a work of art in Sacred Heart Hospital for the waiting room of the brand-new emergency wing. I proposed a work on the theme of healing plants. It began with building a maquette, and for that I employed Kate Mora, a talented architecture student at RPI, the university where Michael taught. The new structure was designed by Benoit Laforet, Montreal architect. The waiting room was designed with the integrated artwork in mind. The location is a beautifully positioned band that forms a U-shape running around three of the four walls with windows above and open space below. Not all architects offer such lovely opportunities for artists. The jury, consisting of a couple of artists, a couple of bureaucrats, someone who worked in the building... Um, The jury loved my proposal. It was unanimous but they didn't believe I could do it. So I was sent away for another three months to find proof. For that, I found Pierre Auger, master silkscreen printer on glass, and apart from his métier, Pierre has made a career of working with artists to realize large-scale commissions. I took my maquette to Pierre, who lives and works outside of the tiny village of Saint-Léon, one and a half hours up the St. Lawrence from Montreal, in his ancestral home. We broke down the materials, measured and remeasured, visited the site, which hadn't been built by that point. It wasn't completed, so it was just a shell, and costed everything. The budget was $75,000, and though he said it should be triple that, he said we could maybe do it. A lot of public art is heavily subsidized by dedicated artists and by craftsmen like Pierre. The odd thing about it is that It's very large, but it was made by cutting and pasting and handmade transparencies. It's basically a collage, and I think that matters, at least it mattered to me in this case. I had to do it that way in order to understand what I was doing. I hand-painted the acetates full-size for the screen printing. Pierre printed color tests, and we worked through two winters. The translation in scale was mind-boggling. But the only thing I really couldn't understand or even imagine was how to get an image, a photographic image of a four-inch flower so that it could be printed at a super high resolution at three feet. I trusted that problem to Carol Harmon, who solved it beautifully. Even so, I don't think I slept through one night from being granted the commission to putting up the first piece of glass. When we came to install the piece, it was snowing. I called it Jardin de Guérison or Healing Garden. It's 34 meters long, over a meter high, 20 centimeters deep. And I'll just read you the materials. Tempered, clear, screen-printed, laminated, and acid-etched glass over a base of painted wood. The work is lit from below by fluorescent tubes. This is not a textile work, but it's definitely inspired by textile patterning. My highest compliment came from the architect. Jardin de Guérison is a magnificent work of art. Rarely have I had such satisfaction in the presence of any public artwork. The installation improves and enlivens the space immensely. I was elated. Between 2008 and 2011, I was shortlisted for eight public commissions. I didn't get any of them. I lost two to the same person. That's eight ideas, site-specific, well-researched, with development, materials, fabrication, installation costs, maquette, basically everything but actually making the piece. It was expensive, and it was time-consuming. And at a certain point, I decided I needed a little break. So, we all know that some architects make a career out of proposals and maquettes, And that's what they do. They can be daring, innovative, and exciting. And they can move their field forward, sometimes residing more in the theoretical than the practical. But I was just trying to do a good job, trying to make something that would make a person's experience of the architecture, the place, better. So I finally decided to cut my losses and withdraw. I'm still very attached to a couple of these proposals. And who knows, maybe one day... I'll get my nerve back. Oh, I just want to tell you a tiny little bit about the Quebec percent for our program. Usually three people are shortlisted. Once a proposal is presented, there is no room for discussion. The jury may love an idea, but if they think it isn't big enough or it's splashy enough or it could be made in another material, they can't ask for changes or negotiate. They simply have to pick from among the three set choices. So it's not really an ideal system. And I actually think in Vancouver, you've got some fantastic public art, and there's probably a more enlightened system behind it. However, as if by magic, a private commission did come my way, but more about that later. So if the commissions and the proposals were side rows or detours or blips, there was underneath it all still a studio practice. In the fall of 2003, my family moved from Montreal to Troy, a town in upstate New York, where Michael had accepted an academic job. It was a really good fit for him, and that meant that one of us had a full-time job, a good thing with kids headed for university. But I couldn't believe this was happening to me. Lewis would not move as he was starting university in Halifax. Adam, though deep down I think he knew better, had this idea that he was moving to New York. My father had just died. I was grieving his loss, and I was concerned for my mom in Ontario. I continued to commute to Montreal. Mainly, I was holding on for dear life to what I knew. So in retrospect, it doesn't seem surprising that I would go to a place in my mind that was really stable and where I had fond memories. I've always spent a part of every August, at my grandparents' cottage on the shores of Lake Huron. Southampton was the one consistent place in my whole life. Every summer, I gathered stones at the beach. For as long as I can remember, I've also gathered gems of speech, holding on to language. Somebody says something, and the magic of it, or the precision of it, or the poetry of it, just tickles me. For the year 2005, I assigned myself the task... Of selecting one text for each day. I let the text prompt me to make an arrangement of small stones on a light table. The arrangements were made quickly and intuitively. I then photographed, photoshopped, and printed each day's text onto vellum. The layering of these translucent images came to constitute the cumulative quality of presence of memory dissolving into past days. I was tapping into the practice of making a commonplace book. On February 20th, I found Virginia Woolf to say, we all indulge in the strange, pleasant process called thinking, but when it comes to saying what we think, then how little we are able to convey. The phantom is through the mind and out the window before we can lay salt on its tail, or slowly sinking and returning to the profound darkness It has lit up momentarily with a wandering light. With this weakness for words comes also a desire for a daily, manageable, pleasurable art practice. This project gave me that certainty for 365 days. One of the projects that came with this was to create little miniatures of each of the drawings and make a calendar for the full year. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of the texts that came up with This one from James McCloskey, a student at Giant Steps, a school for autistic children, as interviewed on the radio. I understand the world a whole lot better now. I still have these problems, like emotional breakdowns or such, but it's better. Or this one, with my son Louis after he had had his passport, wallet, and camera stolen in Cambodia. With every hour that goes by, the situation seems more and more manageable. And it's kind of funny, reading through these texts, I can get the texture of that year, even though they're not about me necessarily. So the vellum drawings piled up. They became generative. Relieved of their textual origins, I could play with them as form. In 2006, I returned to Banff for a six-week residency called Babble, Babble, Rabble, Art and Language, and worked with these in a looser way, And my friend Joan Borsa came to visit. Joanne Bristol lived there. I met a whole new group of wonderful artists. And there I also began work on a web project, which became eventually stonedays.ca, which includes all the texts and all the drawings. I look back at it, and I think there are a lot of things I would change, but it's there. I made layered vellum collage drawings, I began to cut little shapes in the woodshop. I brought the shapes back into language with their titles, which are mostly allusive. On January 16, 2005, the day's drawing and text was from Shakespeare's As You Like It and describing the forest of Ardennes. There you will see tongues in trees, books in babbling brooks, and sermons in stones. And I blew this drawing up... To fill an 18 by 9 foot wall at the gallery at the Albany Airport as part of the exhibition, The Painted Word. The shapes are MDF painted with trim clad flat black rust proofing enamel, which I had first used in the plywood cutout dresses. To get the paint as even and flat as possible, I returned to Pierre Roger and he sprayed each shape, I think three layers on a revolving turntable, and then baked all of them in the hot summer sun. Depending on the point of view, the shapes look like holes. I called this work Tongues, Trees, Books of Brooks, Sermons, Stones. The woman on the right is Sharon Bates, director of the Albany Airport Art and Culture Program, and she's created from scratch a viable gallery and exhibition program involving many locations within the building. Since I arrived in Troy, some of the best exhibitions I've seen have been there. Stone works, not surprisingly, also include quilted wool works. Quilting is my craft. Each time I return to it, it's like coming home. I know exactly what to do. This one is called Stone Quilt, where the lines of stitching echo lines made by waves lapping on the shore. And then Standing Stone in Rolling Hills takes the same quilting motif but flips it so the lines become hills. This one, called Il Pleut, or It's Raining, the abstract shape comes in part from my admiration for the work of Jean Arp. The quilting lines were prompted by a concrete poem by Guillaume Apollinaire entitled Il Pleut. In this poem, the lines of text are arranged in vertical diagonals across the page, like Falling Rain. Apollinaire and Arp were friends. And this largest work is titled from a segment of a quote from the painter Agnes Martin. I called the quilt, All Your Troubles Fall Away. From her writing, imagine you're a rock, all your troubles fall away, even better, a grain of sand. By this time, Adam was studying at Williams College, not far from Troy. One day, he brought a friend home who was studying art history. He asked me, Mrs. Century, do you consider yourself a landscape artist? I was completely surprised. But am I? Selections from this work have been shown at uh, Gallery R. Muir in Montreal and at the Tom Thompson Gallery in Owen Sound, which is only half an hour's drive from the family cottage in Southampton. Because of that proximity, I included a photograph of my father as a boy, in a rowboat, with his brothers, friends, and cousins. With the permission of Annie Dillard's publisher, I called the show Teaching a Stone to Talk. Now, as I said earlier, the stonework also gave me one of my most pleasant collaboration-slash-commission opportunities, on exchange for a website with my brother Jim in Victoria. And here is the piece. It's called Felt Work. It was made from half-inch-thick industrial wool felt, with his collaboration for his apartment, and I was able to make it myself with the wonderful cut-all predecessor of the laser and other digital technology used now. I will conclude this section with my text from January 26 and March 1st, 2005. A quote from David Abrams' book, The Spell of the Sensuous, a book brought to my attention by Sandra Semchuk, another Vancouverite. As non-human animals plants, and even imaginative rivers once spoke to our tribal ancestors, so the inert letters on the page now speak to us. This is a form of animism that we take for granted, but it is animism nonetheless, as mysterious as talking to a stone. Or this from Walter Benjamin. Each morning, the day lies like a fresh shirt on our bed. This incomparably fine, Incomparably tightly woven tissue of pure predilection fits us perfectly. The happiness of the next 24 hours depends on our ability on waking to pick it up. I couldn't resist Troy forever. It seemed to be working out. Because it's a post-industrial city in the northeastern United States, it's in decline, and we could buy our first home. I could afford to have a studio, And I could take the train to New York for the day. And there was a great yoga community. In my first yoga class in Montreal with Joanne Gormley almost 15 years ago, I remember thinking, my body has been waiting for this. Since then, my enthusiasm for yoga has grown. The Hatha yoga I found to be the most suited to me is based on BKS Iyengar's teaching. Instructions are precise poses are held for a length of time from seconds to minutes and if the student can't get into the pose there are props and modifications to make it doable without injury for anyone as i got deeper into yoga to the point of doing a 200-hour certification i remember thinking boy i wish i could bring something from my yoga practice into my teaching I was still teaching part-time in the fibers and material practices program at Concordia. Now, teaching at Concordia was and is a tricky juggling act between making and skill acquisition. Fibers is part of the studio art program, so the major emphasis is on art making, but the students have drastically differing levels of skill. Many of them lack even the most basic, while some are highly trained. And to make matters even more complicated, some of the technically really bad work ends up being good art. And of course, a lot of it doesn't. Though I have come to really enjoy working with the students, but it's never easy. Now, there is a 200-year-old girls' private high school called Emma Willard, only five blocks from where I live in Troy. All I knew about it was that Jane Fonda went there. A friend encouraged me to check out for job postings, and the very first time I did, there was an advertisement for an adjunct weaving instructor. It was 2009, following the market crash, and the school was cutting back. They wanted someone who could do the job, but with a minimum of commitment on their part. I was already there. It was perfect for me. The problem was is that I didn't really know how to weave. <laughs> I called Jane Stafford, the woman who introduced me on Salt Spring, my dear friend and neighbor from early BAMP days, and asked her, if I get this job, can I learn enough between now, which was May, and September, to teach high school girls how to weave? Jane said, of course, but you have to come and stay with me. So I did, and it changed my life again. During the summer of 2009, I enrolled in Pushing the Boundaries of plain weave. I went early to, quote, help with the warping, took copious notes, For an East Coast city girl, Salt Spring was almost as far from my daily reality as a trip to Mars would have been. I gathered eggs, I picked blackberries, I ate like royalty, I fell in love with Jane's family, and to use a weaving metaphor, wove our friendship back into my life. I wasn't just learning how to weave. I was learning a new way to teach, which has served me well both at Emma Willard and at Concordia. Jane is strict. She is endlessly patient, but the work needs to be correctly done. She sets her students up for success. How many of you have heard, a thread under tension is a thread under control? (laughs) This was a lot like BKS Iyengar's yoga instruction. (laughs) Now, that sounds like a perfect thing, right? But it wasn't easy. I was a newbie. The looms looked different. I had 12 students at a time, but Jane and I developed a magical system. If a problem arose, and I didn't know how to solve it, I would take a photo, send it to Jane, and come back the next day with the solution. Now, don't you think just because I do this that you can. Jane (laughs) is a very busy woman. I've just begun my seventh year. I've taught over 150 girls plain weave and twills on four harness looms. By now, I could give a whole lecture on the correlation of nail color to warp selection (laughs) in teenage weavers. I still email Jane, but now it's maybe twice a semester instead of five times a week. I've returned to Salt Spring almost annually to take a course, or to work independently. She is still patient with me. Her love of her craft, her materials, and now her commitment to making a difference in the world through my wall inspires me more than I can say. What effect has this had on my own practice? Well, I went back to pattern, for one. I looked again at a work I made quickly from fabrics bought by Lewis at an African market, which we auctioned to raise money for Mines Action Canada, a not-for-profit working to help victims of and raise awareness about landmines. I started to see in warp and weft language, accepting the limitation of right angles of rectangles and squares. I was reminded of the simple quilts, which I actually called them simple quilts, that I'd made in the late 90s, this one home and this one speed of darkness, which I hadn't really taken anywhere. I started to enjoy being around color. I started to notice color everywhere. I began a folder of digital images called On the Road. These were photos where I had found interesting color pairings everywhere. I especially enjoyed trucks and their tarpaulins, little colorful rectangles popping up, in the landscape. In the studio, I began to recreate the pairings in fabric, not hand-woven, to make collages and eventually sewn 10-inch squares, and so far a small number of larger quilted works. This new work was shown this spring at Gallery Armure in Montreal. I called the show color play, and it did kind of feel like playing. The simple piecing, working with the grain of the fabric, seemed right. So it's not so easy. With so little there, you see every infinitesimal flaw. The source photos are important as inspiration and as titles, and they contribute a playful backstory to the spare works. So this work is ongoing. The Bayou tapestry first came to my attention because I thought that some of the lovely lines of embroidery could be adapted for the stitching lines in a quilt that I was working on. I bought a book, a 30-foot-long folding narrative, and it was just around. The Bayeux Tapestry is an embroidered linen cloth nearly 70 meters, 230 feet long, and 20 inches tall, which depicts the events leading up to the Battle of Hastings in 1066 and the Norman Conquest of England, 900 years ago. It's suspected that its survival is in large part because it was not made using precious materials, i.e. gold or silver, which saved it from being taken apart to make something else. It's also known as the first comic strip. Now, remember those security blankets? I made them for a long time, and I don't think I could make another one to save my soul. But they defined my career, such as it is. I had an idea to do something with the Bayo Tapestry that might revisit the theme of war, but in a different way. Now, this work is very violent, there are horses and men in armor. There are spears and axes. There are body parts flying all over the place. There are even scenes depicting soldiers being stripped of their armor, the dead being stripped of their armor. I responded to the Bayeux by deciding to make a project which is ongoing called Re-Envisioning the Bayou Tapestry, Performing a Gesture of Peace. My proposal is to research and create a large-scale feminist reworking of this tapestry, offering an alternative to its memorialization of warfare. My goal is to create a transfiguration of the original, using similar materials but contrary intent. Conceptually, this work would involve a radical editing of the past to remove the soldiers, the dead and wounded, animal and human, the weapons and the built environment. Embroidered onto the fabric will be only the timeless ground elements upon which these tumultuous events took place. In the spring of 2013, I traveled to Europe and to Normandy to see it. The embroider was in a specially built long corridor, dimly lit, and seemed to be Europe's number one tourist destination. To make things worse, when I exited, I mentioned to my brother and sister how hard it was to see, and they suggested that I had perhaps forgotten to take my sunglasses off. So, three days later, back I went. It was much better. (laughs) Seeing this work was moving in ways I could not have anticipated. It was amazing, of course, to see the handwork up close and how lively and alive the little characters seemed after 900 years. But it was the patching and the mending, the evidence of almost a millennium of time, that moved me the most, like those old Ontario quilts at the Textile Museum. It was also fascinating to realize its proximity to the beaches of Normandy, so important during World War II. With my brother and sister, I visited Arromanches, where a different sort of memorial and documentation exists. Back I went to Jane, this time to learn how to use the loom that I actually bought. After seven years of teaching weaving, I bought a loom six years of teaching weaving. I have now begun to reweave and will then re-embroider the 70-meter work at half scale, depicting only the land, earth, rocks, water. For the project, I'm using Normandy linen, and for this project, six years. Though I'm not there yet, I hope to dye the yarn for the embroidery with natural dyes made specifically from healing plants. I suspect the expertise for this process is right in this room. At the time I was working on the security blankets, I remember two conversations about them with older women in Banff. Dorothy Burnham, textile historian, curator of the textile department at the Royal Ontario Museum, was in Banff in the artist colony writing a book. I invited her to tea and was excited to show her my first security blanket. She did not have the desired response. She was devastated, even angry, she couldn't imagine that anyone could use such a beloved medium to image weapons. The second person was Erna Zelmi, Latvian poet and refugee during World War II and the mother of Ines Burstens. After asking me one day about what I was doing and my telling her, Ernest said, Barbara, you can make art like this when you are young, but when you are old, like me, you will make happy things. <laughs> I truly hope that they would both approve of this project. Thank you.
3: Thank you. The
1: Bayou Tapestry, are you going to put trees in or just the ocean um, lines? I don't think lines? so.
2: The trees look almost man-made, The rocks, the water, the land, I think that's it. But I'm not sure. What a project like this gives you, the chance to do is to really spend time with it and absorbing what's there. So it may change. Thank you very
3: much. Concordia, one of the profs is coming out with a new book. I don't know if it's out yet, called Sloppy Craft i wonder i haven 't read it or heard about it it's, It was inspired I think by Greg Amundston who had done quite a bit of work around craft he 's published two books on craft and it 's speaking to the fact that in a lot of the textile and other craft programs um, across north america essentially the time isn 't being spent on the all the the, the, the skill building it 's mm-hmm. much more of an experience based program now mm-hmm. so it's, people are not as i mean i 'm paraphrasing but essentially people aren 't as worried about all the detail and um,
2: right. I think that's not, re- like, there's, the, sloppy craft was coined, um, I think, by Ann Wilson in Chicago because one of her students, Josh Fought, I hope I have that right, uh, was just a voracious maker of everything weaving and crocheting, and he made these huge, crazy installations that are fantastic that took a ton of work but that are very sloppy. So that's sort of where that started, and it's it's an important strain, and I don't think that's what I'm talking about. Like, if I had a student like Josh Fott who was just going for it, I wouldn't try to tell him to even out his edges. <laughs> you know? But I'm just talking about the, the, the students who really want to learn, but... It's a little bit schizophrenic. I
3: apologize for not referencing Anne
2: at the at the front end of that. Um, I'm,
3: you're just lucky I remembered Anne. Oh, I am. I'm like, oh yeah, that that's right, you know. Um, but it is coming out, and I think it's it's part of. And who wrote it? Do you know? I I you know I'll look it up. I just didn't have yeah. a chance when when Interesting. you had mentioned it, but. It is coming out. It was supposed to come out a couple of days ago. The, uh-huh. the reason I'm asking is because of the work in the program I'm in right now, which is in art education. I'm doing my graduate work at UBC, and one of the pieces of the work around art ed is around um, method in the art and in the work of the hand. And so, so the, the sloppy craft as a method or as a coming into knowing and then... Um, the capacity to to communicate and write to that, what's that all about. And and so I just thought it was interesting given some of your comments. And it seems to be kind of hot right now, and I I, I don't know how far it's going to go or where it's going to go. Yeah.
2: It really comes down to what, what the artist or the student wants to say, because a different thing would be said if it was all perfect. These guys are so technically savvy.
4: Hi, Barbara. Hi. <laughs> I really enjoyed that presentation. Thank you so much. Uh, mm-hmm. It was so wonderful to see the arc of your production and to catch up with things that I loved at the time that they were made and to mm-hmm. see them again. It's always lovely to do that kind of retrospective look. It's not often that you get a chance mm-hmm. to do it even for yourself. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's Can great. I interrupt you just yeah. for a
2: second? Elizabeth McKenzie, with Martha, who's here with Martha Townsend, had a conference in Winnipeg called First Person Plural, and it was about artists who are mothers. And it was one of the special opportunities of my whole life to write to that and to be part of that. So you acknowledged that, that it is a unique experience. So
4: thank mm-hmm. you. And actually I wanted to follow up on some of the work that you've done with children and then, of course, the young people at the school that you're teaching, and then, you know, sometimes young adults at the university level, too. But how that comes out in your practice, comes out in what you do, and the relationship between teaching and making, I think, is really a current through your life. Yeah, who would have thought? But also that, you know, the work that you did as a mother with your children Mm -hmm. and also the I I love that image or the idea of the piece work Mm -hmm. where when you're a mom you're always distracted with young children Mm -hmm. and to be able to come back and do the little pieces. But I'm just curious about working particularly with the uh, high school students who, uh, you know, seem to really enjoy the projects that you're doing with them in the weaving I'm just curious about their relationship to that practice in relation to the lives that they live with technology and, and living mm-hmm. in a kind of different culture than even that we grew up in.
2: Well, it's a very odd thing to have a weaving studio in a high school mm-hmm. to begin with. Mm-hmm. They love it. They love it because mm-hmm. I think it's their one chance to get to touch things. Mm-hmm. Like, they're touching material. Some of them have never ironed. <laughs> Most of them have never sewn. And they just, like, I'm not super demanding, but I'm strict, so the rules are clear, and they get a lot of help one-on-one. And so they just get to enjoy it. And they don't take it that seriously. Like, I'm, I don't think I've had anyone who's decided to be a weaver. <laughs> but... But I have had a few real hot shots who just sort of passed me on week four. And that was, um, thankfully, I'm confident enough by now that I can let them. Thank you very much for a lovely presentation. I was just marveling
3: at the... The vastness of the trajectory of your work and how you've covered textiles and metal and glass and so many different mediums. Mm-hmm. I was curious about your decision to work with the cut steel, for example, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. and it seems that those are children's drawings which have been interpreted in steel. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's just such wonderful contrast in there from the child's drawing to the hardness of metal, which references the weapons that appeared in
3: your quilts earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that was a conscious decision. But
2: A lot of things happen sort of by accident. Uh-huh. The first steel work, which was the commission for the Jewish center, that boat with lead, So I, I had to learn a lot of things to make. I didn't cut it myself, unlike some colleagues who know how to do that. I made an illustrator file, and it was done by a big machine, and, but learning that, I thought, boy, these drawings, because I loved the children's drawings. There's such power, and maybe power is the wrong word, but they, they, I just love them. And I, I didn't see it as making them hard. I, I saw it as making them concrete. Because a kid draws a little thing. Like, I lost that little drawing of the boat. I have no idea where it is. Thank goodness I photographed it. But they don't care about them after they're finished, so this kind of really makes them solid. Someone also said to me once that I, was, I think I was making the coffin quilts so it was fairly early on and he said Barbara thank goodness you're not really well known because then you'd probably just make this for the rest of your life and it's true if you don't get really a lot of recognition you end up getting curious and going on to the next thing Thank you very much Barbara for coming out to thank you. talk to us thank you.
0: You have been listening to a MIWA podcast. The lecture, Stone Drawings and Quilted Lines, One Day Tells Its Tale to Another, was presented on Monday, October 5th, 2015, as part of the MIWA School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. The lecture is introduced by Jane Stafford and features Barbara Todd, the podcast you've just heard consists of excerpts from the lecture. It was first posted in 2018. MIWA podcasts can be found on the MIWA School of Textiles website. That's schooloftextiles.com. That's schooloftextiles, all one word.com. For more information about MIWA and all that we do, please visit our website at miwa.com. That's M-A-I-W-A dot com. I'm Liberty Erickson, and thank you for listening.